of Acts this morning. And we're in chapter 6, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or by the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against God. And Moses, so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change customs Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? Thank you. This last Monday evening... A group of about a dozen of us or so from the church began the Alpha Course. And the Alpha Course is a video series. It's an 11-week introduction to some of the basic beliefs and practices of Christianity. And the first video that we watched was titled, Christianity, Boring, Untrue, Irrelevant. And in this video, the instructor, Nikki Gumbel, talks about his own journey of faith as a former avowed atheist. And at one time, he, did, he considered the claims of Christianity untrue. But in looking at the evidence for the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus and for the authenticity of the biblical writings, he became convinced that Christianity is true. But what about the other two charges? That Christianity is perceived by many as being both boring and irrelevant. C.S. Lewis has famously said that Christianity, if untrue, is of no importance. If true, it is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. So if C.S. Lewis is right, and he is, by the way, how does the infinitely important reality of the eternal God reconciling doomed sinners to himself by the death and resurrection of his eternal son, Jesus, inviting them into, both, into life both ultimately fulfilling and eternal, if that's an infinitely important truth, how has the church over the centuries managed to make that appear boring and irrelevant to many people? Part of the answer, and maybe the whole answer, lies, I believe, in the tendency the church has shown over the centuries to drift from a gospel center to a religion center, or from a Jesus center to a church center. 
And in our own day, it's an inescapable fact that the church in North America is in decline. That scores of people have left the church, not because they have issues with Jesus, but because they have issues with the church. It's almost a cliche in our day to say something like, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in organized religion. I don't believe in the institutional church. Well, let me go on record to say that I believe in the institutional church. I believe that it's a God-ordained, biblical, and even necessary structure. Uh, Structure appointed leaders, organized ministry, formal relationships and partnerships between groups of Christians, and so on. I like that. But there is the danger of having the honoring of the institution cross the line into institutionalism. To honor and affirm the institution of the church is good. Institutionalism is bad. Now consider this as an analogy. Uh, If you are a gardener and you've ever tried to raise tomatoes, you know that it's essential to stake your tomatoes. By securing the tomato plant to the stake, it keeps the plant up, it keeps the tomatoes off the ground, because if tomatoes lie on the ground, what happens? They rot underneath, more prone to insects. If you want healthy tomatoes, you need a stake. Now, in recognizing the importance of the stake, it might be artsy and even fun to start painting the stake and decorating it to make the tomato section of your garden more beautiful. But wouldn't it be foolish to prune back the tomato so that the stake becomes more visible? Or worse, to uproot the plants themselves so that everyone can see your nicely painted stakes? Well, Christianity as a religion or the church as an institution is the stake. It's the necessary framework or context in which the kingdom of God grows and bears fruit in us. But we don't make the church or the religion itself central. Uh, I remember telling somebody some time ago that it is impossible to do God without the church, but that unfortunately it's very possible to do church without God. You can't grow good tomatoes without propping up the plant, but you can have a stake in the ground with no tomato plant attached. And it's when Christianity becomes church without God that it becomes boring and irrelevant. But worse than that yet, when the church itself becomes central, when religion becomes God, it's more than just a drift off center. It's idolatry. And even though the trappings may all be there, such Christianity is not only missing God, it's actually anti-God. And that is the point, I think, being made in our text today in Acts 6 and chapter 7. Uh, There's a real warning and a rebuke here for God's people, but more so, I think, it's a chapter of grace profoundly good news for us. It's a message that frees us, actually, and gives us hope as a church. So let's look at the text. It's a long chapter, Acts chapter 7, and one that if you've read through Acts before, you've probably skimmed this chapter, but it's actually a pretty brilliant speech by Stephen, as good a courtroom speech as you'll ever see scripted for law and order. Now, the book of Acts, thus far, through chapter 5, is focused on the 12 apostles, 
and especially Peter. In chapter 6 now, we've been introduced to a new set of characters. Um, in response to a crisis in the church regarding the distribution of food to widows, there have been seven men commissioned to give leadership to that particular issue. One of those seven men is a man named Stephen. Now, the criteria for the selection of these seven men are that they must be men of good repute, full of the spirit, and wisdom. And so Stephen was apparently considered such a man. It's further said of him that he is full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, verse 5, and also full of grace and full of power. All of these words are descriptions of Stephen's inner life. It doesn't say he was a man of skill with tremendous administrative ability, which is what we might expect, considering that he's being pressed into leadership to oversee a ministry program. What qualified him to serve was his reputation as a man of faith and wisdom and grace and power and of the Holy Spirit. And because those things were true of Stephen, those very things helped him not just run a program, but made him a mighty man of God. Because he doesn't just administer food distribution. Stephen was doing great wonders and signs among the people. In other words, Stephen is continuing the program begun by Jesus, who was attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, Acts 2, and then carried on by the apostles. Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Now Stephen now is performing wonders and signs. And just as the apostles did, Stephen also encounters opposition. Because any, and anyone who is acting out of God's grace and power will experience opposition. Stephen's opposition came from various religious Jews, from the synagogue of the freedmen, Jews from Cyrene and Alexandria on the African coast of the Mediterranean, Jews from the Roman provinces of Cilicia and Asia north of the Mediterranean. They almost certainly included Saul of Tarsus in Cilicia, for Saul is also present at Stephen's death at the end of our text today. And we, of course, know Saul as the Apostle Paul, who later became the greatest campaigner for the gospel of Jesus Christ the world has ever known. And I wonder if the journey to Paul's own conversion begins here with the ministry and the death of Stephen. So these Jews sought to dispute with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Remember, he was full of wisdom and the spirit. Well, when people can't win a dispute with someone, even religious people, they sometimes resort to deceit and violence. And that's what happens here. False charges are trumped up against Stephen, and he seized and brought before the religious council. And the charges brought against him are these. We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, that is the temple, and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses delivered to us. And these charges against Stephen had to do with those things that were very most precious to first century Jews. The temple... And the law. And there are the very same issues that had alarmed the leaders concerning Jesus. Jesus once said, 
destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And what he meant was that by virtue of his coming resurrection on the third day, the worship of God would no longer be centered in a building, the temple, but in a person himself. So the coming of Jesus necessarily meant that the age of the temple was at an end. In fact, in Mark 13, Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple. Jesus also had the reputation of being a lawbreaker because he didn't buy into all of these extra rules that had grown up around the word of God but were not actually part of it. So now Stephen is accused of being of the same stripe, anti-temple, anti-law. So he's arrested and he's brought before the council, the very same council that had flogged the apostles in Acts 5, same council that had tried and condemned Jesus. And the high priest, Caiaphas, presumably, asks Stephen, so, are these charges true? Are you placing yourself in opposition to Moses, to God, to the laws, to the customs, to the temple? Are you placing yourself in opposition to everything that marks us as the people of God? Is this true? And then Stephen gives his defense. And as Stephen revisits the history of Israel for the next 50 verses, it becomes clear to his listeners that what Stephen is doing is turning the tables. He's accusing them of standing in a long line of people who have rejected God. And he culminates his speech in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, he says, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Stephen's defense has four parts. Defense has four parts. We're going to walk through it. In which he highlights, respectively, Abraham and Joseph and Moses and the tabernacle or the temple. So first, Stephen brings them back to Abraham in the very beginning of God's particular relationship with them as his people. And Stephen summarizes the covenant promises of God to Abraham that we find in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. I'm going to read this for you. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 2 of Acts. Brothers and fathers, Stephen says, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And God said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then Abram went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though Abram had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave Abram the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And we'll stop there for a second. So God initiated the covenant, and it is a covenant of faith that was established centuries before the law was ever given to Moses. 
and before the temple was ever built by Solomon. Now, this is a theme that Paul would take up years later, maybe remembering Stephen's address in Romans chapter 4. That Abraham pleased God before he was circumcised, that is, before he kept the law. And that it was his believing of God's promise that was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Because right standing before God is not and has never been a matter of keeping a religion, of holding a, a ritualized set of practices. Instead, right standing before God, acceptability to God, is and has always been a matter of faith and of trust in believing the word of God. On what are you basing your anticipation of God's approval of you? Your generosity to Christian organizations? The fact that you don't cuss as much as you used to? Your commitment to the church, your activity in ministry. Jesus once said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Okay, so what does it mean to do the will of the God the Father? Well, Jesus actually answered that question. Then they said to him, Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. Your value as a stake is not in your color or your design, not the kind of wood that you are. Your value as a stake is your relationship to the tomato plant. Your, the relationship between God and his people is not a relationship of performance, but it's a relationship of faith. And then Stephen, from here on in, the rest of his argument outlines how this covenant of faith was repeatedly broken by the Jewish fathers. After Abraham, Joseph, uh, Stephen talks about Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph. And Joseph is one of several Christ figures in the Old Testament, and that by him, God's people were saved from destruction, in this case, from starvation. And though Joseph was the agent of God's people's deliverance, blessed with special favor from God, he was rejected by the patriarchs, the fathers, who actually sold him into slavery. And Stephen uses the word fathers three times, verses 11 and 12 and 15, and then repeatedly throughout the chapter. So that later, when he says, you're just like your fathers, it packs a punch. This is what Stephen says about Joseph. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. 
And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So, not only do the fathers not recognize the man that God has chosen to save them, they actively reject him. And that's a trend that's only going to continue. And so Stephen moves on to Moses. Stephen spends a long time with Moses, maybe because Stephen is accused specifically of speaking against Moses. And Moses, like Joseph, is a Christ figure. He too is God's chosen deliverer to save his people, this time from slavery. Moses, like Jesus, revealed God's character and will. Moses, like Jesus, was accredited to the people by God by signs and wonders. But our fathers refused to obey him and instead set up and worshipped idols. Here's what Stephen says. Listen for God's choosing of Moses and the father's rejection of Moses. Verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Man, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 more years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I've come down to deliver them and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, Stephen says, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man, Moses, led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. 
he received living oracles, the word of God, to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. And now Stephen quotes Amos who looked back on Israel's time in the wilderness. And Amos says for God, did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? And the answer is no, They did not worship God when they were in the desert with Moses. Instead, Amos says, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So the history of Israel's rejection of God that led to their exile in Babylon was already in full bloom in the days of Moses. They rejected Moses, threatening several times to return, to leave him and return to Egypt. Moses spoke God's law to them, which they then tripped over themselves, finding ways to disobey it. They were constantly, blatantly rebellious, even made and worshipped other gods. Then Stephen turns his attention to the tabernacle. You see what Stephen is doing, by the way, step by step? Then Stephen says, Our fathers had the tent of, the witness, tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So in the wilderness and in the promised land, they had the tabernacle. They had the visible reminder of the presence of God. These same people who rejected Moses. So the tabernacle is no guarantee that they understood God's ways. They also built and worshipped idols, so the tabernacle was no guarantee of right worship. Many years later, David, who was Israel's greatest king, had God's special favor, but was not allowed to build a temple. So the temple was obviously not essential in Israel's glory days. And in fact, King Solomon, David's son, the one who built the temple, was the very one who led Israel back into idolatry. And God himself de-emphasizes the temple and the idea that where the temple is, God is. Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. Do you think, God says, do you think that you can build me a house? Do you think you can build a place where God can be contained, kept, managed? And so Stephen has laid out the history of Israel and said essentially this. God initiated a covenant of faith and you and your fathers have turned it into a religion and a poor one at that. 
Your patriarchs were routinely hostile and violent towards God's chosen prophets and leaders. After they received the law, they responded by worshiping idols. The tabernacle and the temple did not by any means help them honor God. And now you think that God is necessarily identified with that temple? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And the culmination of people's opposition to God was when they killed his son Jesus, the promised Savior and Messiah. And despite the fact that in their religious fervor they have sought to preserve the honor of the temple and the rules that were built up around the law, they have managed not only to miss God entirely, but actually to position themselves against him. Is Stephen speaking against Moses? They have a long history of speaking and acting against God's prophets. From Joseph through Moses and ultimately to Jesus. Is Stephen speaking against the law? They have a long history of disobedience to the law, especially rejecting God himself and worshiping idols. Is Stephen speaking against the temple? They've dishonored God by making the temple itself central. And God's great revelations of himself took place not only outside the temple, but outside of Israel. In Mesopotamia to Abraham, to Joseph in Egypt, at Mount Sinai, to Moses. Is Stephen speaking against God? They have just killed God's son, the righteous Messiah. See, what they've done and what Stephen confronts them with is they are worshiping their religion, not God. And when religion becomes God, that's what creates a scenario in which a man of faith and the Holy Spirit, a man of wisdom and grace and power, can be tried on religious grounds and be accused of being anti-God. And Stephen's defense, very simply, you are the ones who are guilty of the very things that you're accusing me of. Verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they didn't see it. They cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is Saul of Tarsus, later Paul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It sounds like Jesus at his own death. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, that is, he died. And Saul approved of his execution. And thus Stephen becomes the first martyr, the first person to die as a follower of Jesus Christ. 
a man of grace and of power even in his death, killed by those who incredibly thought they were defending the things of God. Pagans and atheists are not the only ones who can miss God entirely. Religious people can be just as susceptible. And so there is an obvious warning for us here, isn't there? Not to identify our religious practices and culture too closely with God as if the two were indistinguishable. There's a danger that we elevate the, the elements of our Christian worship to the level of sacred. It's why you never hear me refer to this building as the house of God, by the way, because it isn't. As Acts 7 makes so very clear. What are the aspects of your Christian life and worship or of our ministries and Sunday services that are most dear to you? Are they so dear that you run the risk of considering them essential to what it means for you to be a Christian? I personally fall into that trap when I consider my engaging in the activity of prayer a sign of spiritual health quite apart from whether or not I'm actually seeking God in prayer. Or when I pat myself on the back for getting through the Bible without stopping to consider whether the Bible has gotten through me. When I'm more concerned with whether people are supporting a ministry than whether that ministry is supporting and building up the people. I fall into that trap when I think more in church terms than I do in Jesus terms. So when you call yourself a Christian, what is, what is the center of your understanding? Is it church? Is it morality? Is it goodness? Or is it Jesus? Are you religious? Or do you love and honor Jesus? There's a warning here for us. But there's also, I think, the underlying note of this address from Stephen is the note of grace of profoundly good news. See, if religion and God are not the same, then our acceptance by God is not tied to our religious performance. Our activities, God does not relate to us on the basis of our religious activity. My wife told me this week of a book that she saw for kids in the waiting room of a clinic. It was a Muslim book, uh, exhorting in kid-friendly fashion, Exhorting the kids to do good things because the book said maybe, just maybe, Allah will be pleased with these things and accept us. Well, we Christians often, frankly, teach in the very same way. Do good, and if you're good enough, maybe, just maybe, God will be pleased and accept you. No guarantees, though, so be religious. But the good news is that Religious performance is not the center. Jesus is, is the center. So the question is, are you facing Jesus' direction? Are you throwing yourself on his goodness and not trying, trying to present your own goodness to God? Religion versus Christianity. What does it mean to do the work of God? To obey him? The work of God is this. Believe in the one he has sent. Do you recognize and surrender to the lordship of God's chosen prophet and savior of his people? Come to me, Jesus said. Do you remember each Sunday morning that the location, the center of Christian worship is not a place or an event, 
but a person. The world does not need another religion or even a better religion. And if we give them religion, if we offer them church, the world will rightly consider Christianity boring and irrelevant. The world needs Jesus. And what kind of Christianity will our culture no longer see as boring and irrelevant? A Christianity with Jesus Christ at the center. How do we reach a lost world? Not by having better Sunday services. People can be more impressed in the movies or at a concert. Not by having programs that help people to connect. The Rotary Club, Hockey for the Kids, a thousand other opportunities are already out there. And not by inviting people to feed the hungry or serve the poor. Lots of organizations do that quite well without Jesus. Reaching a lost world is not so much a question of strategy, figuring out a new plan or a program, as it is focusing on Jesus. When Sundays are about Jesus, when our programs are about Jesus, and they arise from our devotion to him, when we begin to sense and then to share God's own, Jesus' own heart for people in need, when we see kids in India as Jesus sees them, or when we love our hurting coworker or neighbor as Jesus loves, then, then Christianity catches fire. And church or religion that includes Jesus but is not centered on him is inevitably boring and irrelevant. Nobody wants it. People will flee it. They are fleeing it. But more than that, it's actually anti-God. But Jesus, when he's at the center, that not only satisfies the soul, brings fire and life to a church, and fuels transforming ministry, more than that, it sets us at the very center of the will and the pleasure of God. And that is the only thing that matters. Let's pray.